0: And so turn with me tonight to 1 Thessalonians, the 5th chapter. We're going to begin with verse 11, having to do with biblical relations within the church with one another. Paul was talking about that we're children of light not to sleep, that we're to put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. He's talking about faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love, and he tells us that the hope is to be our helmet of salvation. In verse 11, Wherefore comfort yourselves together and edify one another even as also you do. Now when he says comfort yourselves together, he's implying something here. When Paul says that we're to comfort one another, it implies that there's evidently going to be discomfort or infirmities or afflictions take place in the life of a believer. It's interesting that he keeps saying this because in the fourth chapter, in the 18th verse, he said the same thing, wherefore comfort one another with these words. When he's talking about in a moment in the twinkling of an eye that instantly the church is going to be caught away, he's constantly saying that we need to be comforting one another, edifying one another. It's interesting here, Paul is not saying that the pastor should edify you, but he's saying that the body itself, remember we said this last week, he gave apostles, prophet, pastor, teacher, evangelist, for the edifying of the church, for the work of the ministry. He's saying here that the believers are to edify, to build up, to establish, to strengthen one another. Now he says it's not as though you're not doing it already. He says even as you do, but he says that you're to do it all the more, even more than you are. As I thought about that, I thought about the fellowship that we have sometimes as believers. We tend to get together and want to eat or go to the beach or do a lot of these things, but how many times when we're together do we really comfort and edify each other? There are so many lonely people in many churches today who do not know what it is to have fellowship. And by the way, may I tell you something, Paul is not saying here, one-third of you edify the other two-thirds. Neither is he giving excuse or an, an opportunity for some people to say, well, everybody's supposed to edify me. How many of you know that edification comes to those who edify? If anyone were to have friends, he must show himself to be friendly. Many people say, why don't people minister to me? Why don't people do things for me? And they need to stop and say, I've got the cart before the horse. Why don't I find someone I can minister to? But you see, we lose the true meaning of biblical Christian fellowship when we don't cause ourselves to stop and say, God wants me to edify others in the body. He wants me to strengthen them. He wants me to build them up. Do you know that Most people are just starving for a kind word of encouragement. I purpose in my heart when I come here on Sundays, if I can get a hold of the kids and give them a squeeze to tell them how special they are, that God's got a special plan for their life, that God's got a special purpose for them, that God's made them very uniquely, and I'm very proud of them, and I'm really believing in the days ahead we're going to see God really use their lives. And I wonder how many of these children ever hear that during the week. Some of them look up at me like they don't even comprehend that I'm doing this to them like they've never heard it before. And I've seen this all down the years of my ministry. And I want to tell you, mom and dad at home, day in and day out, multiple times a day, hold those children to you. Tell them you love them, that you're proud of them, you want to that you know that God's got a special thing for them, you know that God's going to use them in the days ahead, that God, you've been praying for them, and God is going to make them to be a vessel unto his honor and glory. It's absolutely essential that they have a, an expectancy that down the line God is going to use them. So they'll start moving in that direction. And you see, your home is just a little type of the church. The home is a place where you ought to encourage and edify and build each other up, And then when you get from the home, you come into the church, you just got a bigger family and you do the same thing. When you come to the church, look for people who look like they need to be encouraged. Look like they need to be blessed. Say, Lord, let me be a blessing to them. Let me edify them. Let me say something that will make them feel like this coming week is going to be a better week for them. And edify one another even as also you do. Paul says, you're already doing it, but do it more. And may I encourage you to do it more. Paul's talking to all of us. There should be something different about a Christian from the person that's in the world. And What is that? That we are living, letting Christ live his life out through us, and the love of Christ flows out of us. Well, nobody ever did it to me. Good. You start it so that the next generation can say that. I know that it's hard to manifest love to people if you've never received it, but let me tell you something. You and I, if we're Christians, we have received love. The love of Christ, the love of God in Christ Jesus has been manifested to us, and we know that we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Now, that ought to be enough to turn us around to get us excited to tell others that we love them. Edify them, comfort them, build them up. Verse 12. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Talking to Christians, first of all, the one that is over you in the Lord, don't ignore their needs. Get to know them, first of all, the Greek implies here, get to know them as your friend. If someone is called into the ministry and has a labor of love over you, he says, first of all, it implies to get to know them as a friend, but then get to know their character, get to know their religious principles, get to know their standards. So if someone comes and says, did you know that your preacher did thus and such, you can say, no, my pastor didn't do that. Well, how do you, what makes you think that? Because I know my pastor. Well, yeah, but I understood that he did well. I'll be glad to go to, to him with you, but I'm sure you'll find out that that didn't happen. If it did happen, you need to deal with it. But you know, there are people that have come to me and said such and such, and the church did such and such. I said, no, they didn't. What do you say that for? Because I know them. If they did it, they did it. It was an accident, and they're not even aware of it. If you go to and talk to them, they'll straighten it out instantly. Why? Because they're people of character, high character. They're honest. They got character about them. You see, when we're going to try our pastor, we have to try them by the Bible, not the other way around. Try the Bible by them. But you've got to try them by the Bible. What does the Bible say concerning those that are in authority over us? And I just talked again this past week to someone, and uh, they were saying, Well, I don't go to any church particularly uh, all the time. I go to this one and that one and the other one. I said, Then you don't have a shepherd, do you? Well, uh, well, uh, well I, I, I like this pastor, I like that pastor. I said, But you don't have a shepherd, do you? And that just aggravates them. I said, you don't have anybody ruling over you, do you, spiritually? Now, you see, as soon as we say rule, we think dictator. No, that isn't what the Scripture talks about at all. Look at the Hebrews, the 13th chapter and the 7th verse. and he- uh, Hebrews 13, 17 also, two verses that talks about spiritual rule. Are you saying this to pad your own nest, Pastor Joe? No, because some of you will probably be in another church one of these days, and you need to know what it says in case you're in another church doesn't make any difference what church you're in and who happens to be in leadership at that time. If you're there, then you should know what the Scripture says about leadership. Now again, leadership has to do with office. Leadership has to do with responsibility. I don't know if I've told you this before, but I didn't choose to be in the ministry. I agreed to be when I knew the Lord wanted me to be. And I've always found, generally speaking, the best leaders are those that really didn't want to be there in the first place, but God placed them there. That was the Apostle Paul. He went with his heels dug in all the way, being called into the ministry. But Hebrews 13, 7 says, remember them which have the rule over you, the authority over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith imitate or follow, considering the end of their conversation. Another translation says, try to trust the Lord as they do. You and I have to have role models. Let me tell you, that puts a, a pastor in a tight spot. People say, well, don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Why don't you do the other thing? I say, because I really don't have to. I can can live the rest of my life without doing it. Yes, but uh, there's nothing wrong with doing thus and such. I say, well, you know, the Bible says even if it's not wrong for me, and it's not as wrong wrong as far as God is concerned or I'm concerned, yet if it causes a weaker brother to stumble, why should I do it? It's not necessary. I don't need to. Why? Because this very thing, I don't want to do something that will make a weaker brother to stumble and fall. Look at the 17th verse. Obey them that have the what? rule over you and submit yourselves for they watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you. God's word says that we have to report, those that are in authority report to the Lord, give reports concerning those in the church. And I want to tell you something, there's times when I weep when I pray for different ones in the body, talk to the Lord and there's others I rejoice over when I see what God's doing in their lives. That part that says, them that are over you, 1 Timothy 5.17, take a look at that with me. It says, let the elders rule well, that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially though they who labor in the word and doctrine. Now he's talking there concerning their financial support, and we won't get into that, But he says that the elders are to rule. Now by rule again, he says you don't do it lorded over people like the Gentiles do. Rather, you're their servant. But they must recognize that you have a responsibility because of the calling of God in your life. Office without authority is a misnomer. If you don't believe me, ask some school teachers today. Office without authority is a misnomer. It's the most aggravating, frustrating thing in the world. And I want to tell you something, there are a lot of frustrated pastors in the world today because they have been hired by a church, and they know they can be fired at the drop of a hat. And they just play politics all the time, they're just jumping like a drop of cold water on a hot skillet, just jumping all over and skittering and flying back and forth, and you'll find that they can stay in a church for a few years and then go to another church for a few years, another church for a few years, because they're constantly being worried about whether they're going to get fired, and rather get fired, they'd rather be called of the Lord somewhere else, quote unquote. But they're not ruling as the Scripture speaks of ruling, as those that must answer for their soul. How many of you know that if the position of authority within the church is where the pastor has to answer for your soul, then it does seem rather odd that deacons can hire and fire a preacher. Now I want you. Let me back up and make you understand something. I know why it's happened because necessity has caused it to happen. When you have an organization that shift pastors around continuously. A pastor can get along about three years in this church, and then he's in all kinds of trouble, and so the district superintendent will put him in another church, and he's there two or three years, gets into all kinds of trouble. And I've always said, why don't you put him in a church and say, stay there until the thing either collapses or you learn how to run a church. You can't go anywhere else. Just stay right there. I want to tell you something. There'd be a lot of pastors that would be leaving the ministry today. Any pastor knows that you can go into a church and have a honeymoon for the first two years. The first year they want to eat you alive, second year they wish they would have. Third year they try to. It's happened in church after church after church. And many pastors can stay five or six years and then have to leave. Why? Because of the governmental setup in the church to where you have to try to play patty cake with all these different people to keep them happy. That's not ruling, scripturally speaking. And I hope I can get this across to you. There is the shepherd-sheep relationship. I did not say a master over slaves. I said a shepherd-sheep relationship where the interest of the shepherd is in the sheep. The hireling fleeth, but the shepherd stays. I talked to someone the other day and they said that they were so confused because they had gone to this church because they really felt that this pastor fed them. And just as they're getting involved and really excited The bishop transferred that pastor to another church, and they stuck a guy in there. They said, we could no more identify with him than fly. It was terrible. But now they were in, and they felt like they were stuck. Well, what could they do? Well, after a couple of years, that pastor left another and came in. They said, we just couldn't communicate with this pastor at all. In fact, they said, this particular pastor, there were some things in his life that made it very difficult for us. And I said, you see what's happening now? They stick people in front of you and say, now you've got to accept that as your pastor, But you've got to know what the qualifications are, and if they're not qualified, you need to move out and find out where there is a pastor that's qualified that God speaks through and you sense the Spirit of God speaking to you when he's preaching. Now, you don't hear this in denominational churches today, but if we're going to fulfill these things of which Paul is speaking here, we almost have to come to that understanding of a shepherd-sheep relationship. Those that are over you in the Lord. Now, the important thing there is in the Lord. The only way anyone can be over you spiritually is if the Lord placed them in that office to lead you spiritually. And you don't have to go to Bible college and seminary to come into that position. There has to be the calling of God in your life, and you grow in grace. And again, I say, being a farm boy, that cream comes to the top automatically. It doesn't even have to kick. You find anyone who comes into church and begins to minister and grow and study and, and develop spiritually, you'll find the people start coming to them. What about this? What about that? And they begin to feed and encourage and admonish them. And before long, people say, you know, he's got a lot of common sense. And they come into leadership. And before long, you'll find they'll either go out into other leadership, start their own ministries. See, I worked under two other pastors. And the one thing I always said, I, Lord, please don't let me cut their skirt off. Remember David cut off the skirt of Saul, cut off a piece of his skirt to show that he could have killed him? I said, Lord, please don't let me cut off a piece of their skirt, because I don't want a piece of my skirt cut off when I get in the ministry. And there'd be people come and try their best to pull me in and get me to take an uh, adversarial position against the pastor, and I'd say, I won't do this. I'm here to minister and to build up his ministry and to strengthen his ministry. Why? Because I know one of these days I'm going to go out and I don't want people doing that to me. You see, in the Lord means that they have been called of God to a position. Now, whatever you and I do, just remember, the word says, whatever you sow, that's what you're going to reap. And if you don't learn to submit to spiritual authority, you'll never have anyone submit to you in the days ahead. I've known of parents that could not submit to the pastor and don't understand why their children won't submit to them. Chickens come home to roost. And God is established in the home, the father is to be the head of the home, the wife is to be a uh, help meet with him, and the children are to submit to the parents, and husbands to submit to the Lord. And the same thing in the church. God has placed some in authority or the responsibility. Does that mean the husband's better than the rest of them? No. It means he's got an office of responsibility that he's going to answer to God for. How about the mother? The mother, if she does not work with the husband, and the two of them will work and agree together, there's going to be a price to be paid there also. When a husband and wife do not function together and work together and love one another and encourage and strengthen one another, it's going to come out in the children in the days ahead. You see, there are always consequences for failure. But the Word says if we judge ourselves, we won't have to be judged. God, that's sin. I don't want that in my life. Now, when we come into the church, the same thing is true. There are a lot of people that come into churches that are born in the objective case. I've always said that if their head itches, they scratch their foot. They're so contrary. You just cannot work with them. No matter what you say black, they'll say white. And they'll go charging out and saying, Well, that 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 pastor's a dictator. Anytime I hear people come to me saying their pastor's a dictator, I know what's happened. They've probably tried to run the get, come in and run something in the church. In many cases. Now I'm not saying there's never a dictatorial pastor, but in many cases what happens. They can't, they can't do what they want to do in a church situation because God's called the pastor he knows where he's trying to go and the officers are working with him. Those that rule over you in the Lord is very important for you to understand the qualifications. I am astounded at how few people understand the qualifications of leadership in the church. Look at First Timothy, the third chapter. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, now pastor, bishop, and elder in the King James are synonymous. A bishop, an elder, and a pastor are synonymous words. That means they all they all mean the same thing. All right. The office of a bishop, the office of oversight. He desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behaviour given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker or quarreler, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house. I cannot tell you how many pastors and Christian workers today will try to throw this part of the verse out. Twist it, turn it, everything they can, And when you stand on it and say, that's what the Word says, they'll say, the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. I say, oh, give me a break. Every time they get in a tight spot, well, the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth grace. But if the Word says it, the Word says it. Ruleth well, his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Now, I don't know how that could be any plainer for a pastor. They make the application. If he can't take care of his own home, how in the world is he going to take care of of the church? If he doesn't know how to keep that in order, how is he going to keep the church in order? Now, when you go to a church, if you go to another church sometime, I appeal to you in the name of the Lord, make sure that you realize this is your responsibility to know that pastor. It says, know them that labor over you. Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Another thing, you don't take a young Christian and put him into a place of high authority and responsibility because he's open to the attack of the enemy. Wow, I mean, look at here. I am only thus and such and old in the Lord, and here I am already. I must be pretty pretty good, you know, pretty sharp. And you can get into all kinds kinds of problems. It's not that you're being hard on them. You're actually trying to help them by not giving them a lot of responsibility as a, a new Christian. You don't put them in, in fact, there's another place, and I don't know where the verse is right now, but it says you're to give them a job, and give them more jobs, and more jobs, and more jobs, to see if they're faithful in the little things. Now, there's different ones that come into the church from time to time, and I'll say, "Will you do this, and they'll do it two or three times, and they'll quit. Would you take care of this? And they'll do it two or three times, and they'll quit. And you give them something else, and they'll do it two or three times, and they'll quit. In fact, sometimes they'll even leave after you give them a job. They just don't want those little, nagging, what seem like insignificant little jobs. Well, let me tell you something. It's those things that leadership watch to see if that's done as unto the Lord, to see if later on they're going to qualify for bigger jobs and bigger responsibility. The Lord works the same way. He says, he that is faithful in little, I will make faithful in much. Now, in other words, if you aren't faithful down there, don't expect something up here. And so many times people come and say, well, I'd like to get into this position up here. Don't even ask me to do that down there. And God's word says you'll never get there because you don't know the path. The path is go down and I'll lift you up. Now, that's not Pastor Webb's thesis. That's what the scriptures teach. So if a person wants to come into leadership, you become a servant. I can't tell you, when I went to Bible college, how hard it was on this old flesh right at 1st for some of the jobs they gave me. And then when I went out into the church and I would see what seemed like the pastor wasn't doing too much because I was making 40 calls a week and all these other things, I used to think, wow, it'd be nice to be a pastor. And then when I started realizing the responsibilities on him, I thought, Lord, I'll stay right where I am. I realized that just because it looked like it was good up there, it wasn't necessarily that easy to do. But you see, you have to learn these things down here. And I appreciate that we have a young man that I know of who's father wants him to learn the business so what does he do he takes him out and starts him right at the bottom he has to learn how to take things apart put them back together again know all the ins and outs of them all the repair work that has to be done to them. and the spirit and the attitude of that young person is great because hey i'm learning i'm just learning i then sometimes he'll go in and help his dad in the selling and and marketing of the thing and then go back out and repair and fix up you know he's he's doing it in the same way that the lord says the church should do it you start them at the bottom and see if they're faithful. And As they're faithful, God raises them up and brings them up through. And when you come into a place of responsibility and authority, let me tell you, you look back and you realize the grace and mercy of God in your life. You had to go through all those things so that you learn how to function with people. You have to find where every person is and minister to them and love them right with are not expect them to be way up here. Once in a while you have to get after them and rebuke them, though, because they, you know they're not doing what they ought to do. And let me tell you, it'd be so easy not to say something from time to time to someone in the church because you know you don't know how they're going to react to it. But whether you, they're going to react wrongly or not doesn't make a difference. You have to do what you have to do. Same thing with the father and a mother. I've had parents say, well, I, I'm just afraid that they'll get mad or I'll lose them if I, if I bear down on them. Well, that's their problem. If they need bearing down on, you need to bear down on them. Moreover, he must have a good report of them that are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now that means not only must he have a witness in his family, but he must have a good witness in the community. I can't tell you how many times down through the years I've gone to towns and in evangelism and so forth. And I'd be down in town eating and talk to somebody about the evangelistic meetings and uh, where is it being held? I said, well, over at such and such a church. Oh, you're kidding, not that pastor. Well, what's wrong with that pastor? Oh, he's a scalawag, he's a scoundrel, he's this and that. I thought, oh, well, there wasn't a good report in the community concerning that pastor. Now, I want you to know there are a lot of pastors that are being wrongfully accused. But Peter says that when it, when they do speak against you, you should live in such a way that they become ashamed because they know you're different. They know what you're really like and they're ashamed because they're, they're saying things wrongly about you. Verse 13, And to esteem them or cherish them with affectionate regard very highly. Now the Greek word there actually emphasizes that you should esteem them with highest esteem. Now that does not mean that you put them up on a pedestal. Notice the next words here. Esteem them very highly and love for their work's sake. By the way, this is a command of God for believers for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. You're not to esteem them highly because they might have some... 1 Thessalonians 5 again, verse 13. And to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. A lot of people esteem their pastors very highly because it's doctor such and such or he's got three master's degrees, etc., or because of his natural excellences that he might have while he's a very eloquent speaker or he's a very easy-to-meet fellow, he's got a lot of charisma and he just draws people around him like flies, or he might have an acquired advantage, he has a good education, has had a lot of experience in business and so forth, so I respect him for that. He operates in all the gifts of the Spirit. He's not talking about that when he's talking about esteeming them highly. It says, for their work's sake. First of all, for the calling of God in their life, their, the work that they do and the office that they're in. Now, let me say very quickly that there are a lot of pastors who have disgraced the office, a lot of them, a lot of pastors who have misused it, but that should not disallow the high esteem that God would have us to have for those who have been faithful in leadership. I want to tell you something. There are some pastors who have for years and years, ministered faithfully in little country churches, little quiet churches. I mean, that never have been on the television stations, never been on the radio, never uh, drawn a great crowd. But I really believe they're going to be honored by the Lord because they were faithful, consistently faithful. And the Lord said if they're faithful and if they're fulfilling 1 Timothy, that we're to esteem them highly for their work's sake. And I want to tell you very quickly, I have never yet met a perfect pastor. And one of the ways we can esteem them highly is to pray for them and to love them and to recognize that they are imperfect, just like the rest of us. And because they're imperfect, we have to be patient with them. And I am sharing this with you not because I am your pastor, and yet I am sharing it with you because I am your pastor and I have a responsibility to show you what the scriptures require concerning biblical relationships within the church. And may I just share this with you? How moms and dads speak of the, the office ministry of the church, in a church will sooner or later come out in the children. And if you think it's going to come out in the children, it'll come out even more in the grandchildren. Whatever you say, it will take away from the understanding of the calling of God on a man's life. Now, when you see a pastor make a mistake, when you see a pastor fail... With your children around you, should say, let's pray for that pastor. Let's pray that God will restore him. You know, God called him and he just got tripped up by the devil and he really needs your prayer. We, let's pray for him right now. Lord, we just give him to you because he's your servant. You called him and he failed. He's come up short. Will you minister to him, Lord? Will you just strengthen him? And Lord, show us how we can minister to him. Show us how we can help restore him. We don't want to bury our wounded. We want to try to restore them. You which are spiritual... Shoot and bury them. That is what it says. You that are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourselves also. We're living in a day and age when the ministries are being destroyed, right and left. And I'll tell you, one of the things that's really hurt a lot of pastors is today very few people realize what the Scripture says their relationship should be to a pastor. And I want to tell you something. You need a shepherd. Only you can know who that shepherd should be. Only you know who should be ruling over you spiritually. And then you have to decide and submit. You see, again, you husbands know what I'm talking about. All submission is voluntary. If you think you can make your wife be or do something, you'll wake up one of these days. She has to be willing to submit to you. And that's even come right out of the family, come right over. And by the way, your children the same way. I said, they'll do whatever you make them do until they're 15. Then they'll do what they want to do if you haven't broken their will and submitted it to the will of the Lord and made them desire the things of God. Same thing is true in the church. I can't make anyone submit to my spiritual teaching and authority. I can only present it to them and then they do whatever they want to. it. But you see, that clearly indicates is that a sheep or is that a goat? Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. Peter says, I'm an under-shepherd of Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you, those that are called into a bishop, elder, or pastor are under-shepherds of Jesus Christ. And they have a responsibility, to have an authority. As they speak in their office, they have an authority. They're just as, as prone to fail as you are. They just have a responsibility that God's laid on them. But you and I have to acknowledge that and submit. When I go in for meetings to any other church, I say to that pastor, while I'm here, brother, I'm submitted to you. Whatever I can do to strengthen and build up your ministry, that's why I'm here. If I do anything that's out of line or anything that's inappropriate, please let me know. I don't want to do that. I will not try to say anything that I feel would undercut your ministry here in this church. Now, if I go into a church, even though I teach on marriage, divorce, or if I know they're not holding that position, I don't get up and preach a message on marriage, divorce, or marriage. I get up and preach a message on committing yourself totally to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Later on, if somebody writes to me and says, do you have any other messages, I'll send them my book. But I'm not going to do it while I'm there in their church. I'm not going to stir up things while I'm in the church. Why? Because I'm submitted to that pastor while I'm in his church. If I were to go in there and just like a bull in a china shop, I would be in trouble. When I went to Rowan, Indiana, I went right to that pastor and said, brother, I'm here and I've submitted to you. You know what I am coming to teach and why I'm coming to teach it. But I want you to know if there's anything that I need to know while I'm here, I want you to speak to me. I had a pastor come to me last night. I met him when I was trying to get some work done, and he was telling me that his pastor that brought him along in the ministry had come to the church and was in the meeting, and another man got up that was helping to pastor that church and made a charge against the pastor. He said the pastor, the, the senior pastor, was just flabbergasted, and I said, well, were there two or three witnesses there? He said, well, no. I said, then why did you accept the charge? he said, what do you mean? I said, the Bible says, do not make a charge against an elder except there be two or three witnesses. I said, he violated biblical principles there. Oh, yeah, it does say that, doesn't it? I said, yes, it does say that, that a charge must not be brought against an elder unless there's two or three witnesses. I said, that man was completely out of order and he should have been disciplined by the church for doing that. He should have, first of all, come to the elders or the leadership of the church and made the charge with witnesses so they could have been verified before they'd be brought before the body. Now I said, now that it's before the body, you're going to get all kinds of of gossip and, and hearsay and innuendo going around the community, and it's going to hurt that pastor's testimony. If it's right, he should be brought forth, and, and it should be exposed, and it should be dealt with. But if it's not right, this man's already, it's like throwing feathers out the top upstairs window and then in a windy day and telling somebody to go pick them up and you'll forgive them. So uh, it's important to operate by biblical principles. I, I was floored all the way through the conversation I had with that man that time and time again I would hear him make a statement I think violates a principle. Violates a principle. And you know God's word says if we operate by biblical principles we'll prosper and God will bless us. He said these things are written for our good, for our edification, and so that we can prosper. And when we don't do God's principles, we are the ones who are the losers, and we're the ones who have to pay the price. So. We've been talking about 1 Thessalonians, the 5th chapter. 1 Thessalonians, the 5th chapter. Beginning, we began with the, the 11th verse where it talks talk about, Wherefore comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. He wasn't saying you aren't doing it, but he was saying do it even more. Verse 12, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And we talked about what was involved in knowing someone who's over you in the Lord. It's imperative for you to know who your leader is, know who you're following. How many of you know that our army during Desert Storm would have been in real problems if while they're out on the battlefield, one officer would have yelled at a soldier and told him to do something, then another officer had yelled at him and told him to do something, and then another one, they would have had total chaos out there. Every officer, I mean every soldier knew who he was to answer to, knew who he was to take his orders from, and who he was to follow. And if any other person came around, he'd say, you talk to my superior officer, don't talk to me. And if he tells me to do it, I'll do it. Wouldn't it be marvelous if the church would come to that place? For we would know those who have spiritual authority over us and have to answer for our soul. I say again, nobody has to follow these principles. If some pastor tells you to do something and you don't like it, you can go down the street to another church and tell him to go soak his head. I've known of some people that have done it to five or six churches. One church after another church after another church bounced and ricocheted from church to church. And you know the problem is? They've never found a shepherd. May I just say while I'm saying that, that billy goats can't find shepherds. Because the first thing a good shepherd will do is try to dehorn them. And a billy goat doesn't like to be dehorned. I remember when we used to have to hold billy goats in my hometown, hold them while they sawed off the tip of their horns so they could blunt them at least. You talk about angry. You talk about, boy, if they could get loose, they'd just want to tear you limb for limb. We had to come up and hold, them, hold the two horns against the post so the their forehead would be against that post and would hold the horn so they'd be uh, on the other side and we could cut off just the tips of them. Because if you'd hold them out here, they'd be going like this all the time. So we'd hold them against the post. And I, I looked at that and I thought, I, that's why pastors have a hard time with billy goats. Unless you can find a post to put their head up against, you can't get get to do what needs to be done to dehorn them. But again, these things are what the Lord says we must do if we're to prosper. And if we don't do it, we're the losers. And we can wonder, well, why doesn't this work out? And why hasn't that worked out? And why aren't other things working out? When we violate biblical principles, we're always the loser. We'll pay somewhere down the line. So it says, know them that have the authority over you. And esteem them very highly. And I told you the Greek said, with highest esteem, in love for their works' sake. And be at peace among yourselves. Now, we want to go on to verse 14. Now, we exhort you, brethren... Now, first of all, I want you to see he's not just talking to the pastor here. He's talking to church members. We exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. The Greek means warn them that are disorderly, those that are not keeping in rank, those that are out of line. It doesn't say the pastor should alone should warn them, but it says that brethren and brothers and sisters in the Lord should exhort and rebuke and warn one another in these different areas if they find someone that's unruly. That's why the scripture in another place said if you find someone who is, calls himself a Christian who is being disorderly, doesn't just say this to the pastor, someone who's walking disorderly, don't fellowship with them, don't even sit down and eat with them. Why? That they might be ashamed. Now again, I want you to understand the reason it doesn't work too well today like it did back in the early church because there was only one church in the early church. They all flowed together. There were Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, and Assembly, and all the rest of them. If this one got thrown out of there, and we got, got disgruntled with this pastor, and he tried to go to the other church, they say, don't come here until you go and get that settled over there, and you find out who you're submitted to. If you're not submitted to him, you're not going to come over here. And they, they couldn't do that. But nowadays, again, if you try to tell some person that they're, they're walking disorderly, they can pack up and go down the street to a new, bigger church. Who's the loser? You say, Well, boy, I tell you, wouldn't sure you like to see the thing grow faster? If you operate by biblical principles, you leave those things in God's hands and in His timing. A lot of times we tend to look at success by numbers. And it's not always true. When I realize that the vast majority of churches in the United States are not large churches, But the vast majority of young people going into the ministry, into the mission field today, come from small churches. That's interesting. Because in smaller churches, there's more personalized ministry, there's more personalized challenge and thrust, there's more of a family atmosphere where you can challenge them. It says, warn them that are unruly. And so there has to be times when you and I have to warn people, that's not right for a Christian. But if we're real brothers and sisters, we must warn, we must exhort, we must rebuke, we must come after each other once in a while and say there are parameters for Christian conduct and we need to be very careful of. The next one is comforting to me. It says comfort the feeble-minded. And the Greek gives several different applications. It can mean the dispirited, those who are down in their spirit, those who are disheartened, those who are downcast, those who are confused. It says to comfort them. You know, the world is very, very harsh out there and much of the philosophical teachings of of the early days, uh, even in Paul's days, uh, was the survival of the fittest. If you can't make it, can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. But now again, I want to tell you, that doesn't mean that that's what the pastor is supposed to do. He's talking to the individual believers that you and I are to comfort the feeble-minded. We're to reach out to those that are struggling, those who are disheartened, those who are totally discouraged. then it says, support the weak. The one has to do with the emotions. The other one, I'm sure, has to do with character. Now, it doesn't say support their weakness. It says support the weak. It's one thing, and there are some people that when you see they're weak in a certain area, you can work with them and they can develop strength in that area. There are other people who... uh, operating in that area if you begin to work with them they will let you carry them and carry them and carry them and you have to by experience learn who those people are but when you find someone who is genuinely weak and wants to be helped and wants to be encouraged and build up then it becomes necessary for us to do so the weak let me tell you there are many many weak people that come into the church. And it's much easier to walk right on by them and go outside. Much easier to go home and go back to what we have and know that we've got struggles of our own. But to fulfill Scripture, it means that we stop and we listen and then we go home. Maybe you can't do anything right now, but you can go home and say, Lord, I can't do anything right now unless you show me there's something I can do. But I just pray for that person that you will bring to me or to them the resources they need to have this need met in their life. The next time you come to church, you come up and say, has, "Has anything changed?" I've been praying for you this week. Let me tell you, when somebody comes up and says, "You know, I've really been praying about this thing for you," it lifts their spirit. You actually took time out of your busy schedule this week to pray for me. Yes, has, has God worked out anything yet? Oh, by the way, this week also, while I was praying, somebody such and such came to me and said this to me, and I and I think I may have a, a, a partial answer for your problem here. You know, that's that's the. The beauty of having the loving, the living Christ living his life out through us. We're to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his mind. But there are many who aren't strong in the Lord, and we who are strong are to support the weak, to build up the weak, to strengthen the weak. And I look past in the, back in my past ministry, and I can remember people who were so weak, I didn't know they were ever going to get on their feet. And today I see them out serving the Lord and ministering in the full-time service for the Lord. I say, you know, that's what he's talking about here to where we become that support system for the weak until they get on to feet. How many people do you know that have come to this church when they first got here, had all kinds of difficulties and problems they're trying to overcome, and different ones would just minister in different ways to them. And now when you look at them, they're ministering to others too. They may not be, you know, robust yet, but they're growing and they're developing and they're, they're getting a new perspective on life. God is my source. God is my provision in this situation and we're going to believe God for this thing and you begin to see them sink their teeth into this thing now they're the ones that usually learn best how to support the other weak now if you've never had a weakness and you've never had a problem it's pretty hard for you to understand what he's trying to get across to us here but he says comfort the feeble minded support the weak But this next one is uh, the one that I had that the Lord had to speak to me about again too be patient There are times when I'm under pressure and there's times when I'm tired and people will come around and they may be abrupt. They may be a little bit short. They may be rather demanding. And those are the times when you want to let the old flesh turn loose. And that's the times when you find out what it's like to be crucified with Christ. And different ones will come to the church from time to time and come into the church and just interrupt and bump into you. And if you're counseling or whatever, come and listen to while you're counseling. And at times I've found something come inside and say, oh, this is just not going to go. And I have to say, Lord, give me your patience in this situation. And there's some people, now you probably haven't found this out, but there's some people that are easier to love than others. Ever notice that? Just a little bit easier. That's why you and I have to learn to let the Lord love people through us. And Christian maturity is evidenced by a person being able to evaluate an individual where they are right now. Now there's some people that will come around me and do something or say something that normally if it were a mature Christian I'd say that ought not to be. But when they say it, you have to be able to say, I know where they are right now, and I will talk to them over here later on in this situation. And there are others that are so weak that every time they say something comes out of their mouth, you have to come around and say, hey, let me tell you something. You know, the word says, the word says, I love you very dearly. I love you so much. Don't get discouraged now, but you've got to watch that. And you have to be able to find out where a person is. There are some people that you just can't come up and, and rebuke them. You've got to be very careful how you do it because they wear the feelings right on their sleeve. Others, of course, we're have walk around with a chip on their shoulder. Someone told me years ago that when there's a chip on the shoulder, that's just evidence there's wood higher up. You have to be very careful when you're dealing with people, but the Scripture says that we're to be patient with them. I am so grateful that I serve a Christ who is so patient with me. I cannot describe to you how many times I have to get down and just ask him somehow to be merciful to me because I don't understand that kind of patience. But if you just teach me that patience, I experience it over and over again. You know, we always say, Lord, you know, I did this or I said this or I thought this because, and we've always got a reason to justify what we do. And when somebody else does, we say, Lord, pop pop their belt for them. You know, really, let them have it. You have to stop and say, No, Lord, you say with what measure we measure, you're going to measure to us again. So, Lord, be patient with them too. Now, if you and I can't learn to be patient, then God will teach us what it is to be dealt with with impatience. It's so interesting how God always, in everything He has to say, He says, This is what you ought to do. Now, if you don't want to do it, that's all right, but this is what will happen if you don't do it. You know, that's a good way to teach your children. I keep emphasizing to you, you let them make the decisions. If you do this, there's blessings. If you do this, there's curses. Now, you choose which way you want to do I won't make the choice for you, but if you do this, this is the end result. If you do that, that's the end result. Now, when you're all done, don't say it's you're sorry because you will have made a quality decision and then I will act on that quality decision. You understand that? And if I say it, you know I mean it. I'm not going to lie to you. God does the same thing. He doesn't lie. He said, whatever we sow, that we also reap. Verse 15, see that none render evil for evil unto any man. Now, again, in the Old Testament where it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it was not saying there is the freedom for revenge. He was simply giving limitations or parameters to what could be done in revenge. Today, you know, people tell me that I will say to you, well, he hit my kid. If I get a hold of him, I'll just bust his head for him. And God was saying, no, we're going to put parameters on it. If somebody knocks out one of your teeth and you can knock out one of their, that was same too. If they uh, knock out an eye, you can take out one eye. And he said, "That's you can't go beyond that. That's the limit that you can go. But in the New Testament, he said, Don't render evil for evil, but rather good for evil. When people say evil things about you, and by the way, in the church, once in a while, very seldom, once in a while somebody might say something that hurts. But the Lord says when that happens, rejoice, first of all, then secondly, be kind to them and come back with even greater kindness, greater love, greater compassion toward them. If they say all manner of evil against you, come back with love to them. Why? Because a soft answer turns away wrath. Well, you can say, "Hey, you want a knuckle sandwich?" Now, what have you done? You've you've brought up the flesh and revenge, and bitterness begins to go between the two of you. Everything we do as believers, we must do in response to this fact. What would the Lord do to us in that situation? You know, we're talking about a lot of full gospel churches, but there are a lot of full gospel, so-called full gospel churches that are not preaching the full gospel. They're preaching about all the blessings and all the prosperities, but they're not talking about crucifying the flesh and dying to self. That's the full gospel. That's the rest of the gospel. They're not talking much about the cross today, being nailed to the cross and being buried with Christ, dying out to self, This self-esteem garbage, I'm sorry. The Word of God says you humble yourself. Put yourself down in God's sight and He will lift you up. And if you and I put ourselves down, we'll not render evil for evil to any man because all vengeance is evil. Now that does not mean that you and I cannot stand up for our own rights. If an unbeliever comes and takes something or robs you, or takes your your legal rights away from you, you have a right to stand up for your legal rights. Remember when Paul the Apostle was beaten, and he was a Roman citizen, and they didn't ask him anything, they just beat him? And the next day they sent some guards and said, you can leave now, and he said, I'm not leaving until the captain of the guard comes here. I'm a Roman citizen, I was beaten. Let me tell you, that guy came very suddenly, very much afraid, and said, please, please, I am so sorry, will you just leave town? And when he finally came and asked for forgiveness... Paul did not press charges against him. Had he pressed charges against that man, he could have. That man would have been killed. You never beat a Roman citizen. And he had violated Paul's rights. But when the man asked for forgiveness, Paul forgave him. Even though he had the right to have had that man killed for what he had done to him. The next part of that verse says, But ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Follow, but ever follow that which is good. The Greek word for good there, it also speaks of benevolent, whatsoever is just, whatsoever is generous. But ever follow that which is benevolent, or just, or generous, or good. Both among yourselves, first of all, among yourselves. First of all, among yourselves, the church should be generous one toward another. The church should be good one to another. We should have compassion for each person in this body. You'll never, there's going to come a time when you're going to have a need in your life and you're going to have to have someone that you know that's close to you that can pray with you and encourage you and help you and will be there for you. It's easy as long as everything's going very, very well. But when things go wrong, you need someone's close. The scripture says we should do those to follow that which is good and uh, generous and benevolent and just among ourselves first and then to all men. Now, hey, by the way, he didn't say in here, if they treat you rightly, regardless of their conduct. And we talked about that when we were talking about men of God or fathers, the father's group. That husbands are to love their wives and wives are to love their husbands regardless of their conduct. It's not this, if you love me, I'll love you. And if you're nice to me, I'll be nice to you kind of thing at all. That's not a godly love. That's, That's a fleshly love. But it's talking about here where we love, even if we aren't loved within the body, and we do good, generous things for those around about us. And By the way, sometimes we need to literally look for ways to be generous and good to those around about us in the body. By the way, it's easier to do good a lot of times than it is to be good, isn't it? It not only says to do good, or be good, but it says to do good. I've seen people do a lot of good things, but many times it's harder to be good than it is to do good. But when we ask the Lord to give us strength every day for His goodness to be manifest out through us, we cannot do it in our own strength, by the way. It's when we say, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live yet, but He, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Lord Jesus, You show me by Your Spirit how to manifest Your love to those around about me. When we do that, then we begin to see His life flowing out through us. It also doesn't say that we're to do this if we can see the reward from it. It says, but ever follow that which is good both among yourselves and to all men. It does not say, and you will see the reward from it. You don't dare give up even if you don't see any response. Some of the families there in the community I have been doing this with. I've been doing it year after year after year after year. Did they ever do anything back? Sometimes, some of them don't. But I'm not doing it with the idea of getting something back. We're just to do it because we're supposed to do it as believers. I read some time ago of Christopher Columbus when he tried to come to the new country that the men were ready to mutiny on him. And they finally had gotten so weary of just going and going and going and never getting and seeing anything, they finally said, all right, if we don't see land within two or three days, we're turning back, whether you like it or not, Columbus. And Columbus evidently was a God-fearing man and he prayed. And on the third day, they saw land. But I thought to myself, what if they had turned around after the second day? That close, and then missed it. And I just want to try to emphasize that for this this reason many many times we'll do and we'll do and we'll do for other people and we say well i just don't see any fruit of this i don't see any results of this and we quit and we never know but what we might have quit one day before we would have seen land and we're not supposed to just do it to see the land we're doing it because that's what we're supposed to be doing what because we're going to receive our reward not from men I don't want my reward from men. That's what Jesus said concerning the Pharisees. He says when they pray, they go out in the public place and hold their hands high and say, Dear God, and everybody looks at them. And Jesus said, they've got their reward. They wanted the praise of men. They got their reward. Everybody said, oh, look how spiritual he is. Isn't that marvelous? He said, well, when you pray, he said, you go in your closet and pray. Close the door and pray in secret. And your Father, Heavenly Father, hearing in secret, will reward you openly. Now, by the way, we may not get our reward here, but if we do it as unto the Lord, how many of you know we will get our reward? I don't know about you, but I'd much rather get my reward there than here. If I get it there, I've got it forever. If I get it here, I have to leave it behind. These are principles that will cause others to see Jesus Christ in our lives. That's why I say they're good things for God's people. God says, my thoughts toward you are continually good. If that's true, then every everything he wants to teach us, everything he wants us to learn is for our good. And we're blessed and we're the better for it when we operate by those principles. Now, I want to say again, it's totally contrary to human nature. Human nature says, don't bug me. Everyone else first, right after me. I'll get all I can, can all I get, sit on the lid and poison the rest. You know, I've talked to you about. That's, That's capitalism. And we're in such a rush to get our goals accomplished, we forget that when we give to the poor, when we minister to others who have needs, we're ministering to the Lord and He pays good interest. Do you know that? God says, I pay good interest. You will never give up any time or possessions in obedience to the Lord, but what you will come out the winner because of it. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verse 16. Rejoice evermore. But one of the reasons we fail to rejoice evermore is because we tend to forget all that God's done for us. We get to looking at our problems instead of His provision. And I want to ask you, when was the last time you began to remember, Now David said it this way, remember the hole from whence thou wast digged? If for no other reason, just for the reason of rejoicing, you ought to make it a habit in your life that at least once, if not two, three, four, five times a day, you get opportunity to, to express with your mouth your rejoicing in the fact that you were saved. Well, yeah, but I'm failing and I've missed it and I've sinned. Begin to declare more that you how much you're rejoicing in the fact that the Lord saved you and you'll begin to see victory in these areas of your life. The devil will always try to defeat you by keeping your mouth shut and telling you you're no good. But when you begin to rejoice over the fact that you are saved, Jesus said, rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Look at at Philippians, the the third chapter with me. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, the end of all things, the last thing I've got to say to you. Here's the secret for happy Christian lives. Rejoice in the Lord to write the same thing to you, to me, which indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. He says, rejoice. Now look at, at the fourth chapter and the fourth verse. Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. We sing that song, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. And then we sit down and go, well, let's get on with the service. You see, again, this is not a suggestion. This is a command for interpersonal relations between Christians. How many of you have come around and say, "How are you doing?" Well, I'm going to make it, I guess. You know, well, it's been really a tough week, and I just—God's well, dead. But isn't it refreshing once in a while to be able to come around and come around a Christian when you see them, even though you know they're going through difficulties? Say, "God is faithful. I thank the Lord; He's faithful." I thank the Lord that He has promised you'd never fail. Rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice Second thing you can thank the Lord for and rejoice in the Lord for is your freedom in Jesus Christ. I was in bondage before I found Christ I couldn't quit smoking I couldn't quit drinking I swore every other word with a foul word and I had a repertoire of filthy jokes like you couldn't believe and I couldn't get rid of them. And when I came to Jesus Christ and laid them on the altar and asked Him for forgiveness and repented of those things and asked Him to set me free, I want to tell you something. He did a work in my heart that I didn't even have any idea could be done. I was amazed the next day. The things that before I couldn't get rid of, they didn't even affect me anymore. And to know that I am free. You know, some people say, well, you're so bound up. You can't drink and you can't smoke and you can't do that. You can't go here and you can't go there. I said, no, 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 I'm free. You're the one that's bound because you can't do without him. The Lord set me free. Now I can say, do I really want one of those things and let it smoke and me be the sucker? No, thank you. I really don't need that. Do I really need something that'll fry my my brain and burn out my liver? No, thank you. I really don't need that. My, My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and I want to be courteous to him. I don't want to fill it full of smoke. Christ has set me free to where I don't have to serve the devil anymore. I don't have to serve the flesh and the lust of the flesh anymore. I can put off the old man and put on the new man and walk in the spirit. And I want to tell you something. Don't let anyone tell you that Christians are in bondage. The Christians are the ones that are free and they're trying to bring you into bondage because they're in bondage. And every day you ought to say, Lord, I thank you for the freedom I found in you, that my sins have been washed away. Third thing, reason to rejoice is the assurance that you and I can have of Christ never leaving us and of his continuous love. I have counseled so many people who have said, well, I I don't think my husband loves me anymore. I don't think my wife loves me anymore. I don't think my mom and dad love me anymore. I don't think my children love me anymore. And What a thrill it is to know that every morning when I get up, I can say, Lord, this is the day you've made. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it because... Your mercies are from everlasting to everlasting and your love is totally consistent. You said you'd never leave me, you'd never forsake me, and I know that when I get up this morning, your love is brand new for me. Brand new. When I claim cleansing through the blood of Jesus Christ, it's just as though I've never sinned and I'm white as the driven snow and I can come into your presence, Father, boldly in the name of Jesus Christ and through his blood. And know that that love is consistent. Even when I'm not faithful, yet he remaineth faithful. God's love is totally consistent. Always there. Always the same. Agape love. One way street. I don't know about you, but every once in a while I have a difficult time being able to even get my mind to grasp that truth enough where I can rejoice the way I ought to. You know, really, basically many Christians today are not thankful. We're not thankful for the blessings that we've received from the Lord. And when we read a verse like this, we just think, yeah, I would if I didn't have all my problems. We don't have a problem. I said to this woman today, I said, you know, the best and the worst thing that can happen to us is to die. The worst because we can't continue to serve the Lord here, but the best because we never have to have another pain or sorrow or heartache or bill. Or I said, I really think that Beverly got the long straw. I got the short straw. I still have to see how I'm going to get the tax money put together for my house this year and pay the insurance on my house. And I still got to figure out how I'm going to get all those trees that were hit by lightning cut down and cut up and stacked up and get all that garbage taken a haul out of my yard. And, but I can rejoice in the fact that His love is continuous. And He says, I'll see you through all the way to the end. He which hath begun a good work in you will continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. And you need to rejoice in that. And then to rejoice in our hope of glory. Rejoice evermore. I find more and more Christians today saying, Oh my goodness, what are we going to do about this problem in the world and that problem in the world? Look at humanism coming up and looking, look at the abortion problem we got in the world today. And look at the financial problem. Look at I said, No, 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 no. Don't look at those things. Jesus said, When you see these things start happening, what? Look up. And I said, I, I want to be in the such a position that if Jesus were to come, or if the Lord would call me out of this life right now, I'm ready to go. If he wants me to stay here for another 40, 50 years, I'll be ready to do that too. But just the expectancy, the anticipation, the hope that absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. See, a lot of times you think I'm preaching trying to help you folks a lot of times, but many times I'm preaching to myself. When I preached the series years ago on the renewing of the mind, I preached that for me. When I preached that whole series of 12 messages, I preached that for Jeff and me on heaven. It transformed my attitude when I realized that there's nothing in this earth that should should shake me or, or knock me off my pins. Just realize, just a little, in a little while, Jesus is going to come. Or in a little while, the Lord's going to call me home. But what difference does it make what I have in this life? The important thing is what have I done with what he's given me to do? In the meantime, I can rejoice. Paul, the apostle, was beaten. He was shipwrecked. He was lied about, but what I'm thinking about is he's some of the brethren, false brethren that came against him and the Jews came against him and everything else. But he said, that doesn't move me a bit. He still rejoiced in the Lord. Why? Because we've won. We've already won. I've read the last chapter. We win. No matter what the devil throws at us, we win. When the end is when it's all finalized and signed up and finished, We win. One of the things I just noticed recently, they're talking about all these republics in the southern part of Russia that most of them are Arabs. And when I read that part, I I began to think, you know, it said in the last days, speaking to the Jews especially, I believe, said they're going to bring them up to the councils and they're going to be killed and so forth. He said they're going to kill you thinking they're doing God a favor. And I'm just wondering with that crowd that's going to come down from Russia, if a lot of them won't be the Arabs from the north and from the east and from the south all coming in on Israel. Thinking they're doing God a favor by killing off the nation of Israel. I don't know, but you see, all those things, all it's telling me is that we're getting close to the end time. Now, don't get weary. Jesus said, Don't be weary in well doing, for in due season you'll reap if you faint not. When we quit rejoicing, we're fainting. Do I need to say that again? When you and I quit rejoicing, we're fainting. You say, But I am so weary, I'm so tired, I can hardly keep my eyes open, I can hardly stay awake. But thank God, whether we wake or sleep, his presence is with us. His protection is over us. How many times has the Lord protected you today from being killed? You don't know. The angel of the Lord is there continuously watching over his children. These are reasons for us to rejoice in the Lord. And we get to bed at night, Lord, thank you for this day, for your faithfulness, for being with me all day long. In the morning, thank you, Lord, for a good night's rest. Thank you that this is the day you've given me. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in you. You know, you've got a believer inside of you. You either believe that God is on your side and that you're going to win out, or you can believe that you're defeated and you're going to have a flat tire. But I want to tell you something. The Bible gives us a command here, and that is to, we're to rejoice always. Psalm 50, 23, I want you to see it. In verse 23, "Whoso offereth praise what glorifieth me."